Hello, and welcome to episode number 117 of the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Jane Litt from Dear Author, and Dina Halick, who is a librarian, specifically the department head of Philbrick Hall, the fiction and DVD department at the central branch of the Free Library of Philadelphia. Dina contacted us about a recent conversation we had on the podcast about purchasing ebooks for libraries and how librarians often struggle to build a good digital book collection for their libraries due to a number of issues. Dina was willing to answer our questions and discuss some of those issues and talk specifically about the frustrations that she encounters when trying to buy fiction for her library for digital for digital readers specifically. And we also talk about the fantasy, science fiction, and historical romance that she loves. So this might also be a bit of an expensive podcast in terms of the number of book recommendations, and I apologize in advance. Y'all know it's just as dangerous for me too, right? Okay, as long as we're clear. This podcast is brought to you by Berkeley, publisher of Romancing the Billionaire, the sizzling new billionaire boys club novel from New York Times bestselling author Jessica Clare. You can find Romancing the Billionaire anywhere books are sold. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast about who this is and how you can purchase it for your very own. If you're like me, you're probably nodding your head along right now because this is pretty awesome. I like this song a lot. I also love when we have new music. It makes me very excited. In case you don't listen to the outro, which I totally understand, Dina is also willing to answer your questions about libraries, acquiring ebooks, that sort of thing. So if you have questions for her, email us. And now on with the podcast. Okay, well, a few weeks ago, you just briefly touched on getting books, ebooks from the library. And since I am a librarian and I'm actually somewhat involved in purchasing ebooks for the library, I figured I would tell you how that kind of works and why you're seeing some things and not seeing other things there. Tell us all about <laughs> ordering ebooks for a library. I understand that this is a really simple process and there's never any problems. Never, never. At least none that you see. Um, do you remember, oh goodness, I, I am old and I'm trying to remember how long ago it was, but Napster and uh, LimeWire and all those things that started coming out with music and everyone was like, ooh, music online, it's free, it's not free, what are we supposed to do? That's kind of where we are with ebooks for libraries. It's this huge, big thing that's happening that nobody's really gotten an idea of the best way to do it yet. So the publishers are like, we love libraries having books, but we don't want them to get like one book and then it never gets worn out and they never have to replace it and then they lose money that way. So, and at the library, we're like, we want everyone to be able to read everything. And it's a really great way to publicize your books is to have them in the library because people will run across them, read them, hopefully love them, and then want to buy everything you've ever written. So those are kind of the two things that are working there. The publishers want to make money and we want to have everything. And we're never going to have everything. So what the publishers do is they work with kind of a middleman. The major one right now, the one that was first out of the gate, is called Overdrive. So if you have a library card and you download a lot of uh, ebooks or audiobooks, 80% of the time you're going to be doing it through Overdrive. And that's a distributor. The publisher sells to Overdrive, Overdrive sells to us. And then we use their platform to distribute the books out to everyone. And not all publishers treat libraries the same way. So if we were buying a paper book, uh, we usually get 
approximately a 40% discount on the book. We buy a lot, we buy in bulk, and there's a lot of libraries doing it, so we get a discount, kind of the way a bookstore gets a discount. And the, and the paper books that you're buying, are they more often hardcover, or are they a special format so that they don't degrade too quickly? There used to be library format. Um, you'll see them a lot of the times, the older books that have a, a binding that you've never seen in a retail store. It's, it's a tighter binding. It's a little bit more uh, reliable, a little last longer. Yes, I've seen see, those many yeah, times. Yeah, they stopped. I haven't seen the library buy one of those in over 15 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, maybe some of the kids' books. I don't do kids' books, so don't quote me on that. But I've never seen an adult book come through that way. We buy the paperbacks, the trade paperbacks, and the regular hardcovers the same way anybody else does. And um, ebooks don't work that way. You don't say. <laughs> For one thing, not all publishers sell to libraries. Uh, it was only in the past year, I think, that Penguin started selling to libraries because they were holding back. They're like, I don't know about this ebook thing. I don't like this idea that nobody's. They they think, I don't know what they think. I think they think that once there is a perfect copy out there, people just aren't going to buy any. They're going to either um, download them and pirate them or just wait for the library, which is what you do with regular books anyway. I mean, if I had to pay for all the books that I read, I would be so broke. That's what the library's for. I'm in a good position, though, because if I want to read a book, I, I buy it for the library because I figure if I want to read it, other people will want to read it. And, and so that's how my library romance collection comes to be. That's just a terrible side benefit of being a librarian. Getting oh, I to, hate my job so much. I know. It's just a <laughs> terrible, terrible thing. Yes. So uh, some publishers do not sell to the library. Which is why you'll see, um, or you won't see certain authors, because if their publisher doesn't want to sell to the library, that ebook is never going to get into the library because we just you can't buy it. do it. We can't buy it. We want to. We can't. The other thing, um, and this is across the board, is we don't get discounts on ebooks. There so is, you get forty percent. You get forty percent off of a paperback or a hardcover, but for an ebook, you pay full price. Oh, but if only it was just that. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me there's more? <laughs> there's more. Not only do we pay full price, and there are some really fantastic publishers out there who, uh, and I'll get back to them, who, who don't try to do some weird things. But uh, what a lot of the publishers do is they inflate their prices. So um, say it, I, I just read Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, which just won all the science fiction awards. And that is a $15 trade paperback. To buy it for the library costs, as an ebook, costs $48. And I see prices for books that would go in the stores for anywhere between $10 and $25, going for between $60 and $80 for some publishers. So what they're doing is they're saying, listen, we're going to sell you this book, but it's never going to wear out. And we know you're never going to replace it. So we're going to get some more money up front to kind of balance out the money we're going to lose on the other end by you never buying other copies of it. So there are some publishers, uh, Hachette Random House does that. Um, and it irks me. But I can deal with it because, yes, this book is never going to get lost. It's never going to get checked out and never returned. It's never going to have the binding fall apart and the pages fall out. So, yes, I understand not paying a discount, and I even understand paying a premium for that. Other publishers meter this, meter the checkouts that you're allowed. So it's not like you're buying the book, you're renting the book. And there was a huge stink a few years ago 
about HarperCollins trying to decide what the optimum number of um, checkouts would be. And they decided it was like 26, right? 26. They said an average book lasts 26 checkouts before you have to replace it. Which... I remember I remember this because there were there were like librarian MacGyvers making video of how they repair a book and all of the different tools that they have yeah. to restore a paper book back to functional circulation level quality. Yes. Yes. And a lot of what happens like and I've looked at the circulation of my books. This is just like a very tiny sample. I would say a well-loved paperback circs anywhere between 35 and 50 before it's unusable. And then, yes, we either buy a replacement or we just were like, okay, we're not getting that book anymore. Let's go on and buy new stuff. Um, so, yes, uh, HarperCollins does 26 circulations. Some of them say it's metered for a year. So as many circulations as you want, like as many checkouts as you want, but after a year, this book expires and you have to repurchase it. So it's basically putting a hard limit on how many times this book can be checked out or a time limit on how many times this book can get checked out with no real bearing on what the equivalent as a paper book would be. And so I, one of the reasons you won't see some books in libraries is because a librarian looked at this and said, you know what, I'm going to spend my money on the paper copy instead of the metered copy. And because I know it will last longer than 26 circulations or last longer than a year. Especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, libraries don't have unlimited budgets. The budgets get smaller and smaller every year. It's, and there's so much more stuff to buy, and without the discount, we can't buy as much of it. So you have to be a lot more critical about what you buy. Um, and then, I just found this out when I was digging around. Some places both inflate the price and meter it. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. So, uh, and, and what was really sad is last week, because um, Harlequin and Karina, um, Karina especially, because I can't go get those as paper books. I, I would buy like pretty much all the Karina books that came out because it, they were great. They're popular. They circ like crazy. Um, and they weren't metered and they weren't inflated. It was, they were fantastic. Now that HarperCollins has bought Harlequin, Last week, oh no! All the, everything from Harlequin and Karina uh, has been metered. No, yeah. no! So, yeah. I knew it was going to happen, and I'm still bummed out. I know, I know. Mother, so everything... puss, bucket, piece of donkey crap! Can you tell I'm trying not to curse? There's people yeah. in the room with whom I cannot curse. <laughs> so every book from Karina and Harlequin has a metered checkout of 26 checkouts now. From uh, last week forward. So the stuff we bought prior to that does not, is still okay. It's, it's but, grandfathered in, so to speak. Yes. yes. From but, what I've been told, I, I checked with my IT guy before uh, I, I, I said, okay, I'm doing this. What can I say? And he goes, oh, it's all public knowledge. I'm like, yes, I can talk about it. Oh, crap, monkeys. Now, the, the, the uh, Karina titles don't have DRM. Do they, do they have them now? No. So no, the I DRM I, remains off to the best of your knowledge. To the best of my knowledge, Karina is still open EPUB. Um, but you get 26 checkouts. But you get 26 checkouts. So my guess that is you start blows. seeing... That just blows. I can't even come up with... I'm just gesturing. You can't see me. I'm just gesturing <laughs> now. So my one guess of the is you're going to see less of those. One of the things that um, publishers say is that they don't see a rise in sales between 
the checkouts and um, retail sales. So I know that some libraries have set up affiliate links and that you can buy the book direct from their site. Is, is there anything that's being done to go to publishers to say, hey, we do sell books and here's you know, why you shouldn't be pricing these books so high? Or, or, or are, is your argument as a library to publishers kind of, this is a public good and you shouldn't be gouging us? I think it's a little of both. Uh, yes, we're a public good. Um, yes, we sell books. And I think that the American Library Association especially is on this. Um, I am but a very small, small fish in the pond. So I, I can bitch about it to my publisher friends when I see them at conferences, but I don't have a, uh, a, a voice in the argument to the extent that the library uh, organizations do. Yes, it is being argued that, but it has been. I mean, this is just a format change. Um, it's argued that having a book in a library is good publicity, and that's been going on for hundreds of years. So the argument hasn't changed. This argument is still being made. But the format and the, uh, I don't know, the, because it's an old argument, we haven't had to say it for very long. So now that we have to start fighting again for it, I think it's starting to heat up a little bit. And if you look at uh, um, librarians talking amongst themselves, well, the National Book Awards were the other day. And uh, my friend was following the live tweets of them and a book, a reviewer, I believe, a journalist kind of put his foot in it and said, what's this about ebooks? What? What? They're expensive? Huh? And then all the librarians just kind of piled on him and went, oh, really? <laughs> Let me tell you about this. How do you not know this? It's, it's definitely a conversation that's going on in the community. And I know that uh, Yale is being proactive about, um, I'm sure they're talking to the publishers. A lot of the stuff is behind the scenes. Uh, but they've definitely put out uh, releases and press releases and statements about this. It's just hard because we don't see that any change and the changes we are seeing are not for the better. So every change that has happened has not been particularly library friendly so far that I have seen, except Penguin now sells books to the library. So that's good because they kind of jumped on board. Macmillan started selling because they were holding out for a long time. So you're going to start seeing them. I think Penguin was selling a lot of the, they and Penguin won't be on Kindle. It's very interesting because Overdrive uh, works with your Kindle. So you, what you happens is you you download it and it goes to your Amazon page and then you can download it to your Kindle just like any book you bought on Amazon. It's so cool. My yeah. my Overdrive connection because we have in New Jersey we have a library consortium and I think mm -hmm. just because you know basically New Jersey is a bunch of small towns all glued together very closely. Yeah. And then there's like the glue is made of big box stores. So it's like Kohl's and Best Buy and Staples. That's what glues us together as a state, basically. But all the libraries are part of an enormous consortium. And in my county and all of the counties around me, we're all connected to the Bergen County Cooperative. I'm not in Bergen County, but I'm all up in their consortium. And the books that I have downloaded, the the ebooks that I have borrowed from my local library, most of them I had an option to go through Amazon and then manage the lending and the returning through Amazon, right. which I thought was not only amazing, and I had no idea that happened, but I also have to say the layout and the function of the actual send and return was a lot better than the other layouts that I get when it's time to send and return a book. 
it's not particularly intuitive the way it works. No, it's it's weird. But then you get to Amazon, it's like, here's the button, press the button. Just just the one. You can't move yeah. right here. It's like five feet wide. Click that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good job. Here's your book. Thank you, drive through. So yeah, isn't on that. No, that and it's watching the, 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 the protracted negotiations of publishers with different people over the past two years from libraries and Amazon and other and and Barnes and Noble and all of these different negotiations being covered. I mean, I don't know diddly poodle about the terms, but I have always thought that it takes a certain amount of chutzpah to say to libraries, we need more money from you for you to function to get our books. We need more money from you. You don't have more money. You have less money. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's and, and digital books. It's like if I could spend forty eight dollars on an ebook and I can spend the same amount of money on four paper books or three and a half paper books. I mean, that's some math that I'm going to have to seriously think about, especially which doesn't since, make which hmm? doesn't make publishers unhappy because they want to promote the adoption and, and preservation of print books. And so, so their plan, their evil plan is working. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to think because, I mean, the three of us here, we read ebooks. And I read them, I read ebooks and paper books interchangeably. Um, I'm in Philadelphia and our digital divide here is vast. And so, I mean, you can't focus. What do you okay, mean by digital divide? What does that mean? People who have computers at home, who have internet at home versus people who don't. I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So we have a very large population who does not have access to the internet or who does not have a computer at home. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about all these ebooks and it's fantastic and ebooks are at about 10 to 15 percent of our circulation now that doesn't have a commensurate funding for buying the books because you have to start thinking, is it worth it to buy the ebook that maybe 30 percent of your population will read versus a book that 100 percent can read? So that, that's another argument that kind of gets in there as well. Um, the, the consortiums are fabulous. And if you I want to, even if you live in a tiny town, if you live in a state that has a library consortium, check your big city library. If you, I had somebody call me from Texas, from a little town in Texas the other week, and they were asking me if they could get a library card with us. And I said, yes, you can. We charge $50 a year, which is fairly, if you read like a book a month, that's worth it. Um, I think New York public is a bit more expensive, but check your, uh, your, your large library in your state. Cause we will give a free library card to anyone in Pennsylvania. And every so, state has a state library, right? Um, yes. The state library isn't always what's in charge of this. Right. My, my recommendation is like, if you're in Texas, talk to Houston, talk to Dallas, see if they have it. I don't know. I'm guessing just Texas is the one that was on my mind. But if you live in that state, you're probably going to be able to find a library card and then you have access to every, not just books, audiobooks, and streaming movies, databases. What are some of the things that you notice among the digital lending? If you can talk about it at your library, what types, what's, what types of eBooks get a lot of eBook lending? Is it, is it the same as the paper or is it a different demographic? And if that's not something you can talk about, it's totally cool. I know that there are, I got my dad a library card and I know what he does is he just trolls the new releases and he just picks up anything that looks interesting that's available. Um, we get a lot of romance. Um, I try to buy a lot of LGBT stuff as an ebook because I think, and it's it's borne out that circulation of ebooks because you don't have to show a cover when you're reading on a bus or anything. And it's a little less 
potentially dangerous slash embarrassing to read like a gay book if nobody knows you're gay. Um, so stuff that is potentially embarrassing gets checked out a lot, which I think is fantastic. And I'm annoyed about this Karina thing because they have a lot of really good male-male uh, romances that I can't get in paper, but I can get for the eBooks. And so you, you're, you're seeing people who may be exploring sexuality, mm-hmm. borrowing through digital reads to learn more about things that they can't find out overtly. Right. Or, you know, that they're too afraid to find, to go into the, to go into a library and go into the gay and lesbian section is a statement. Yes. I mean, and yeah. some people are not comfortable making that statement. No. And right. yeah, probably no one's paying attention to you, but that's not what it feels like. And you make a good point with Karina because they do have a lot of male, male mm-hmm. publications in their fiction in both like futuristic and historical and, and contemporary. So having that limited checkout is a, is more of a problem for those readers. Yes. Damn, and that limited checkout yeah. takes me off. <laughs> and, and for stuff like that, it's like, I know it's not going to circulate very well if I buy it as a paper book, but it will circulate like crazy if I buy it as an ebook. Um, I don't know how well children's books circulate because there is something visceral about sitting with a kid and a picture book that can't really be duplicated with a kid and an e-reader. So I know we have a lot of uh, children's picture books and chapter books as ebooks. I don't know how well they circulate. Um, just- I have never had great success looking at picture books with my kids on a digital device. Every now and again, there'll be one on sale or I'll find something on the library and I'll download it to a tablet. But basically, it's like reading a color PDF. Right. And it's you can tap on the text to make the text box itself just a little bit larger. And you can, sometimes you can zoom in on the illustrations and sometimes you can't. But the experience of a picture book is not something that I have enjoyed digitally as much as I have on paper. And I still buy paper picture books. For my older son, who is nine, who has uh, the emphasis on reading this year. I mean, there's a lot of problems that I have with Common Core curriculum in New Jersey. But the degree to which reading is emphasized in terms of logging what you read and interacting with what you read is fantastic and both kids have started reading a lot my nine-year-old is now approaching like Sarah's speeds of reading he is churning through books so quickly now and the library digital options for him are a huge bonus especially because there's so much YA chapter books digitally available now yes definitely the, the once you move into textbooks like, yeah. like books with t- as opposed to pictures that's where it starts picking up but a lot of kids don't have dedicated e-readers as opposed to adults. Correct. So it's, st- it's still the audience. I don't know if it's there to the extent the, the adult audience is. Definitely romance goes like crazy, but romance readers have been early adopters of this technology since the very beginning. Um, I take out cookbooks a lot. That, that's my thing. Uh, I don't know. And I'm always on a waiting list for things. So it basically, if you if you have it, they'll check it out. It's very rare that I look up a book that I want to check out that's available. Um, we do treat books the same way as paper books. You don't. It's not like once we have it, everyone can check it out for at the same time. We buy licenses. So if there's a really popular book, we'll buy three or four or ten copies. But then ten people can have it checked out, and when their time expires, the next person gets it. So it's it's not like. Uh, being able to like one click buy it from Amazon all the time. 
So what do you one. think? What do you think would be the ideal solution? Do you have an idea as to how to fix the distance between the publishers and the libraries when it comes to digital books? Have you seen any solutions or ideas that might help bridge that divide? Because it's a big divide. It is. It is. I think the fact, and I am not a fan of DRM at all. I don't like digital rights management on my stuff. I like being able to take things from device to device. But I think that having DRM on library books helps the publishers because um, it's it's not, you can't just download it and it's yours. There is There are actual restrictions on that like you would have on a regular, if you just check out a library book, you don't get to keep it. You have to bring it back. Um, so that kind of makes the book a little harder to pirate. Um, so I think that, that putting DRM on that was a good thing for a library publisher relationship. Um, even though I, I really hate DRM, I see why it's there. It also helps manage um, when it expires. It's just automatic. It expires, it goes to the next person. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's an ideological thing. I don't know if it's just a money thing. My ideal solution is all the publishers sell us all the stuff um, at non-inflated prices uh, and not being metered. That would be wonderful. One thing I know about libraries is that you keep a lot of data. You are aware of what is borrowed. You're aware of patron behavior and you're aware of how patron behavior differs from branch to branch and that you are extremely protective of that data. So I say thank you for being that way. Um, <laughs> I was about to say we don't keep any of it. No, you, you are aware of it and I know libraries yes. have to use it internally to mm -hmm. talk about budgets and spending and buying and all of the things that go into being an effective library, you have to study the data that comes in through your patron usage. And I know that especially since Katrina, since Hurricane Katrina, um, on a government level, people have realized how important a library is as a function of um, basic disaster location. Mm -hmm. And that I, I think it was, I don't remember. It was the ALA in New Orleans. I was in. I was a speaker, and I heard a general meeting of the ALA where they were talking about how FEMA had upgraded local libraries to Tier One restoration, so that if there is a disaster, the fire department, the police department, and the library are in the first round of people who are established with power and safety because people go to the library. And that's definitely true where I lived. After Hurricane Sandy, most of my town didn't have power and the library was open 24 hours a day because they had heat and internet. And they, and they were like, and we have all these books. Just come on in and read the books. And it was cold. So everyone slept, people slept in the library for a couple of days. It was, it was awful, but that's what the library does. So I know that you pay attention to what happens in your building and how your patrons interact with your with your books and the things that you lend and then you, you know you have video games and movies and everything with with all of that data that you have is it and you touched on this briefly is it hard to prove is it still hard to prove that your function as a opportunity for book discovery and book exploration is still is still profitable or potentially profitable it's like, very how, hard to how do you prove that? Like, I'm trying to think like, okay, what's, what's, what's the connector that's going to make it clear? Okay, libraries function in all of these ways, and they also help sell books. It's not a, it's not a bookstore or library decision all the time. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the, I must own this, get out of my way, I have to go to the bookstore now. It's, um, the problem is, is really the, the basic metric that we have is circulation. Right. We can 
we, we know how many books are being checked out. We know how many times a certain book has been checked out. We don't know who's checked it out. That is um, information just so you know that if you check a book out from the library, we know you have it checked out while you have it checked out. We will not tell anyone. There are privacy laws. Um, even if you call up and ask me over the phone what you have checked out on your account and you can't give me your library card number, I'm not telling you what you have checked out. Um, once you return it, it is off your record. We no kidding. Cannot, I didn't know that. We cannot find out what you have checked out, even if we got a subpoena. Um, from, uh, my understanding is even if the police came and said, what did this person check out last month? I can't tell you. I do not have that information anymore. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's a really important, uh, I mean, everyone should be really aware of privacy. It's not anybody else's business what you've checked out to read. Yes, but librarians are pretty much p privacy badasses. There, I've read many a story of a librarian like, ha ha, I laugh at your subpoena. Bye. <laughs> Your subpoena amuses me greatly. Would you like to borrow a book? <laughs> I won't tell anyone what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, you could totally borrow that book. Go ahead. I won't tell. No, really, it's yep. fine. Mm -hmm. um, so we can see what's been checked out and we can see, but we, we cannot track usage in the library. If you just come into the library, sit down and read a book and leave and never check that book out, we don't have any information about it. So, so it has to pass through your system in order to, to register as cir having circulated. Correct. It and then the person who out. borrowed it, that information is disconnected from the record of the book. So you'll know that book A has been checked out X number of times, but you have no record as to who those people were. Correct. It could be the same person renewing it 60 times. Who wow. knows? Don't know. Um, yeah. So it's hard because we're nonprofit. We are not in it for money. We've never been in it for money. And when you're not in it for money, um, the corporate side of America doesn't quite know what to do with you. You don't say. <laughs> so we have anecdotal evidence. We know that if an author <laughs> comes called, to us. That's called anecdata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have lots of anecdata for the library. <laughs> yeah. So we know that if a major author comes to the library, we have a lot of author events where I work, uh, we can pull like three to 500 people to come and w listen to that author. And, you know, a fair number of them will purchase the book. We have, we have a partnership with a bookstore that comes in and sells the books for us. Uh, so we know that the library is a draw. We know that author events are a draw. We know that um, so we have uh, a lot of cities have this. We have a one book, one Philadelphia program. And so every year they pick one book that the whole city's going to read. This year it's Orphan Train. I forget who the author is. I apologize. But, you know, the minute we have like 100, 200 people on the wait list for that book, you know there's going to be people who are like, I'm just going to go buy it. So that pushes it as well. Um, or I, I don't know. I don't know how to measure that past what we do. It's not like I'm going, and I don't, I talk with people and they're like, yeah, I really like this author. So now I figured I needed to collect her. So I have all her stuff at home. Yep. Backlist glomming. Those I are mean, my people. I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I will not purchase a book unless I know the author and I like the author. Mm -hmm. That's what libraries are for. It's my test ground. My understanding of how most or many romance readers interact with the library is that our appetites always outstrip our budgets. Oh, and yes. we have much, much more uh, appetite uh, for, for reading than we do have dollars to support that reading. And so we buy and we borrow. Yes. And we also buy what we have borrowed. Oh, yes. 
one of the most common themes of the uh, help a bitch out feature on my site is I borrowed this book from the library. I can't remember which one it was. I can't figure it out. Here's the plot. I have to go buy it. Mm-hmm. It's never, I need to go back to the library and find it. It's, I, I read this years and years ago. It was a library book, but I need to own it. Mm-hmm. I have purchased and given away about 15 copies of The Princess Bride. Uh-huh. And every time a new version comes out, I buy it. Because I need to own that book in every single permutation. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I do that too. I do that too. And yeah, I took it out from the library the first time. Um, and I fell in love with it. And then that was kind of my springboard into uh, obsessively purchasing it over and over again. It's a good thing you're a librarian. I started out working in a bookstore and the 30% discount was amazing. <laughs> I bet it was. And then I figured that libraries are even better. Yeah, you've already paid for those books through the virtue of your lovely tra- taxes. Yes. Now, one thing I do want to mention, especially with the self-publication that's happening now, which I mm-hmm. think is fantastic, we can't buy those. You can't. Really? Why not? If, uh, it, especially if it is, if it's not through a major publisher... It's hard to get on Overdrive. Courtney Milan did it. Courtney Milan's stuff is all on Overdrive, which is awesome because we now own all of them multiple times. I believe what she did was she went through her um, her agent. Her agent has the connection to Overdrive. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you uh, publish your book through the Kindle-only imprint, uh, we can't get it. Um, the we Overdrive just inked a deal a few months ago with Smashwords. So if you're on Smashwords, we can get the books. But any other format, if it's Kindle only or if it's only through, you know, if you do it yourself, only through some of the smaller platforms, it's very hard for us to get, um, which is really frustrating. Like, remember when you guys were talking about the last hour of GAN? Yes, that was, that was, Jane, I think we had like eight podcasts in a row. Yeah, so I bought it. Um, can't buy it for the library. It's not in print, so I can't get it in print, and I couldn't get it as an ebook for the library. So I bought a copy, and I, and the problem is, is if we can't get it for the library, I can't recommend it on the library site. Of course, because we have to link to what we have in our catalog. Um, so things like that, which is a fantastic book, and people should read it. And you can't get it from your library. I'm so sorry. Uh, so that's also an issue that's getting more and more prevalent, just because more and more people are self-publishing. So, so you mentioned when we connected some of the things that make you happy, what are some of the things that make you happy? Like what makes you totally excited to go to work? Oh my God, get out of my way. This day is going to be awesome. Uh, I like book ordering day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anybody in any permutation of book ordering who isn't like, yes. Basically I get to go to work. They pay me to go to work and I shop for books for the library, which in my head is books for me. Uh, so that's always fun. I love going to the library and being on the reference desk and recommending a book to someone and they love it. It's, it's the warm fuzzy feeling you get when somebody comes back and you're like, Oh my God, sunshine by Robin McKinley. I can't believe I'd never read it before. What else has she written? Ah! So that is always fantastic. Um, and then you, what I really love is when you get those, uh, over time, the long-term connections with patrons who you know who they are, you know what they like. Um, and as you see books come in, you're like, oh my God, Patricia would like that. Or, oh wow, Kristen would love that. And you start kind of like matching books to people and you get that relationship. And then they recommend books to you. So I've read so many new things because other people have recommended them to me. Patrons who came in that I said, you would love this. And they said, you would love this. And I'm like, awesome. 
So, yeah, my reading list gets really big really fast. That's a terrible, terrible (laughs) problem to have. But people make these connections based on uh, the... I had a, oh, I had the cutest couple in yesterday and the husband, uh, they're losing their eyesight and the husband reads all the books out loud to his wife. That's and adorable. We, I know. Oh. So I know a few people like that. Mm-hmm. It was, it was wonderful. And I took him into the large print section and I was, I was like pulling out some books that I thought they would like. And we were chatting and, and the lady was like, oh, but you probably remember everything you read. I'm like, oh no, I, Next week, I won't remember a thing about what I <laughs> Welcome to week. my brain. <laughs> that's, that, that's why I have Goodreads. That's why I make lists. Mm-hmm. And she was, oh my goodness. She was, it's like, I think her eyes just, her face just lit up because it's like, really? I forget also. And it was just that little moment that you're like, this is that connection, that human connection that just gets you. Yep. And that's, I love being on the desk. I love talking with people. That's my favorite thing. I don't want to be stuck in the back on a computer doing my stuff there. I want to be out in the public and having conversations. And that's my job, which is fantastic. So I like, I, I am so lucky. I get up in the morning <laughs> and I like going to work. That's just terrible. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh my gosh, dude. That's just, yeah, so if you're that's in just Philadelphia, horrible. Which library are you at? I'm at the Central Library. I'm actually in charge of the fiction library. Oh, so, dude. Yeah. And I am also, I, it's taken me a few years, or from the beginning, it took me a few years. I am in charge of science fiction, fantasy, and romance. Oh, so, really? Oh, yes. So would you be willing to share a few recommendations in science fiction, fantasy, and romance? Sure. Like what is popular, what you recommend, what books you thought you think are just worth finding in your library? Do you know what was really hard is I started thinking about books I wanted to recommend it because I read your website and I listen to the podcast. Everything I've read over the past month or so has been stuff you've talked about already. And I'm like, I don't want to say that again. Everybody knows about a Bollywood affair. Um, <laughs> That's a rare thing. Jane and I never <laughs> agree on books. Like when, when we both agreed on that one, I was sort of like... Um, alarmed a little wary <laughs> concerned but i still laugh that even though we liked it we we had differing opinions about what type of book it was like we can't agree on really anything nope like our venn diagram overlap is this tiny infinitesimal <laughs> two molecule sliver it so is like we both like that book but we disagree about why <laughs> yep so let's see uh For romance, I just read Rogue Spy, the last book, or the latest book by Joanna Bourne, who wrote, uh, her first one was My Lord and Spymaster, I think was the first one. I do like that book. Every book by her is amazing. Spymaster's Lady. Spymaster's Lady, sorry, yes, My Lord and Spymaster is later on. Um, Yeah, I I will read anything by Joanna Bourne, and I'm very excited that her very early, uh, her ladyship's companion, I believe, has just been re-released as an e-book that has been out of print for like 20 years. So I will be getting that. Um, Grace Burroughs is a new favorite. And Grace Burroughs has so many books out. I am fascinated by her because I know her writing is not for me. But when I listen to people who love her her books, they all really gravitate towards something different. For some for some readers, it's the amount of emotion in the, in the characters, especially the heroes. Um, people really dig the angst. And what, what what shocks me is Redheaded Girl, who reviews for me, is very knowledgeable about historical detail. 
like she constructs historically accurate costumes for different periods of time in the Regency and the Edwardian era and knows the difference between what how different pieces of costume work. At one <laughs> point, I sent her a book cover and I said, I I don't think the corset is supposed to be like that. She emailed me back instantly. She went, it's upside down. That woman <laughs> is wearing the corset upside down. You can tell because of this and this and this other thing. She's wearing it upside down and backwards. Like she can identify this stuff. And the historical inaccuracy uh, in Burroughs books doesn't bug her at all. She's like, whatevs, don't care. I don't like everything by her. Um, but she's written her latest series was... Uh, Captive, the Captive, the Traitor, and the Laird. And it, it really has my catnip, which is the Broken Hero. Oh, yeah. A lot of Broken Heroes in this series. Yeah. Yeah. And I really liked all of them. I have a colleague at work who we, we sit together at lunch and, and go on and on about romance novels together. And, and her, her thing is uh, the Broken Hero and the Virgin Hero. Those are her two big ones. And I have to say, I enjoy those ones as well. So I, I would recommend The Captive, the Traitor, and the Laird. Um, I, I don't recommend every single one of her books. I do have to be a bit picky about her. Mm -hmm. um, but, oh, do you know who I really love? And she's not a household name at all. Judith James. Really? Yes. She um, she wrote a few books, and then she started writing a uh, series of romances set during the Restoration. Hmm. Um, the King's Courtesan, which is loosely based, the heroine is loosely based on Nell Gwynne. Um, so she grows up in a brothel and, you know, all the, so, so she's not an aristocrat. Um, and Libertine's Kiss, which is based on uh, the court poet at the King of uh, James II. And I love these books because they were romances, but they had a lot of politics and they had a lot of history. And she did her research and it was really interesting. And then she fell off the face of the earth. Okay. So it's like a 50-50 blend between historical fiction and romance. Yes. And they're nice. really, really, really good. The um, King's Courtesan has been re-released with a new title, Soldier of Fortune, which I liked the first title better. But she, and then we knew there was a third one coming out and then nothing happened. And from what I understand, it just didn't get published with that publisher. There was like a couple of years, nothing. And then back in September, I get an email because evidently I had signed up for her email list and forgot about it saying, my book's coming out tomorrow. Woohoo! And I went, ah! And so the third book in the series, which is called The Highwayman, came out and I, I bought it, like I pre-ordered it, I have it. And the thing is, is I haven't read it yet. It's sitting on my Kindle, and I don't want to read it because the series is over. This is it. And so I don't want it to be over. You don't want it to come to an end, so you're not going to read it. it? I know. I should read it. I'm super excited about reading it because I love the first two, but I'm afraid <laughs> that when it's done, there'll be nothing left. So that's like a weird kind of mental thing that I'm going through right now. I know. Um, I, I know I have been there. <laughs> I understand. I really, I really like non- Western European books, historicals especially, and there's so few of them. Um, I really like Jeannie Lynn. You mean like uh, historicals that are not in England, and, France? And don't feature European characters. Like, I want characters that, you know, if you're setting it in China, I don't want, like, the white samurai. If you're setting it in ancient China, give me Chinese characters. And I really enjoy Jeannie Lynn for that. Sherry Thomas with My Beautiful Enemy at least has one Chinese character, which is awesome. And those are really hard to find. And if anyone knows any really good ones, let me know. Uh, it's, it's because it's so predominantly white. You don't say. So white. <laughs> um, and it's really nice to read about other people. One of the joys of reading a book is going into a world that's not your own. 
I, I would like to read other worlds that are not my own as well. Courtney Milan, I, I said that, anything by her. She's my catnip. Have you read Teresa Romaine? I've read some of hers. She is, we are talking about white people in England, but what I do love, I have a whole category of uh, Regency, but not in a ballroom. I like those. Because like you said, not only does, not only is there an, an enormous amount of sameness, but Jane, I think you were talking about this a while ago that when you write a historical and you set it in London, you don't have to work too hard on the world building because the the audience that's reading the book is already familiar with what a ballroom is and what Hyde Park is and what a Phaeton is and the police and the rain. And there's a certain amount of common understanding among historical readers so that if you set them in the very familiar world, it's very easy to turn that book into wallpaper historical because the reader supplies all of the world building. Right. Am I, am I paraphrasing you right or did I get that all wrong? That's right. (laughs) I did just read a book called, I forget who the author is, but it's called A Dream Defiant, which uh, I I bought under the wire because I think it was Karina. So we got it for the library. And the main character is, uh, the guy is a son of runaway slaves who is an officer in the British army during the Napoleonic Wars. And the female lead is an ex-chambermaid who's uh, following the drum with her husband who gets killed at the beginning of the book. And it's there then uh, the relationship between these two people. And it was, it was a decent book. It wasn't like stunning, but it was about characters you do not read about very often in romances, which I thought was really interesting. There are, there are a few uh, Carla Kelly his Regency historicals that take place in the war, like in the Napoleonic war. And the, it's weird how, how, um, how I could describe a book that's about war as a comfort read, but, they, but the Carla Kelly Regencies like that are definite comfort reads for me. I'm writing these down. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Uh, science fiction and fantasy you asked about also. Yes, please. Okay. Well, Ancillary Justice which by Anne Leckie, it won the Nebula, it won the Hugo, it won the Arthur C. Clarke, it won the Locus, and it won the British Science Fiction Award this year, and it's a first novel. It's really interesting, because in the culture that is being written about, there are no masculine pronouns. Everybody is she or her or daughter or sister, irrespective of gender which is fascinating when you're reading it because you are then trying to decide, is this person male or female? Is it changing how I'm reading this character if I swap the gender in my head because they're not telling me what the gender is? It, very interesting. And it's, it's uh, a fantastic book about um, the main character is an artificial intelligence of a ship. But the ship has disappeared, and now the only part of the intelligence left is in uh, the body of one of the ancillaries, which is basically bodies that the the, the ship uses as like extensions of its own uh, consciousness. So there's only one left, and and uh, Breck is the name of this, and Breck is on a quest to do something at the beginning of the book, and you learn as you go along what's going on. But the world building was so interesting, so interesting. So I just finished that one and promptly downloaded the second one. So I'll be doing that next. So highly recommend that. Um, if you like romantic fantasy, Amy Raby is really good. Uh, she wrote uh, Assassin's Gambit, 
and the main character is an assassin sent to kill the emperor, and uh, he's also broken. He's missing a leg, so that was my catnip. They fall in love and have adventures, but it's in a very, in- again, a very uh, interesting world that, that I really enjoyed, and there's more than one in that series, which is nice. I always recommend Princess Bride because it's perfect. Well, that's your catnip. It is. And it's the only situation where the book and the movie are equally fabulous in my mind. Uh, That doesn't always happen. Almost never happens. The book is almost always better. But The Princess Bride book and movie are both perfect. Um, Robin McKinley's Sunshine, those aren't particularly new. Very obscure. I just read a book a couple of years ago called Constellation Games about a group of a consortium of aliens who come to earth and the main character all he really wants to do is play their video games and he's the one they pick to do first contact with well why 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 would you not want to play all the video games this makes perfect sense to me so if if you like gaming there's a lot of stuff about video games in that book um ready player one by ernest klein Mm -hmm. is a fantastic pop culture um science fiction virtual reality video game type book anything by tanya huff yeah Tanya Huff is, you know what I love about Tanya Huff is that she writes across like science fiction, high fantasy, urban fantasy. She writes it all. She writes series, but she ends the series when the story is done, which a lot of people don't do, especially when you're looking at fantasy. Um, So she'll write three or four books and then the story's done and she's like, okay, now I'm going to write something else. So she goes off and she writes something else. She also is really great with dialogue. I love witty banter. Yeah, I do too. And she's phenomenal at witty banter. She just has a brand new one out, the third book in her, in the Gale Sisters, the Enchantment Emporium series. And it is uh, called The Future Falls, which is on my Kindle that I'm waiting to read. Um, There was a book that came out last year called The Rook by Daniel O'Malley, Australian author. And it's basically about a woman who wakes up in a body she doesn't recognize with absolutely no memories. And there's some notes in the pocket telling her who she is. And it turns out she works for uh, an organization that protects Britain from supernatural threats. It was the most hilarious book. I love that book so much. Um, And I just found out a sequel's coming out in March called Stiletto. And I kind of squeed and emailed all my friends and emailed the publisher going, do you have an ARC? And she kind of went, no, but a lot of people have been asking. So I'm really hoping she'll send me an ARC sometime soon. But if you like uh, urban fantasy, witty banter, just sheer hilarity, The Rook by Daniel O'Malley is fantastic. Cool. So before we wrap up, I have, an, I have one question for you. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you wish more readers knew about the library, something that we could do to support the library, something we could do to make your life easier, something that you wish more people took advantage of? Is there anything you wish you could communicate to people who don't necessarily have time to hang out and talk with a librarian? Um, I think that one thing that you, you, if you talk to a library, if we don't have a book that you want, ask us to get it. If we can, we will. So that's, uh, so I think a lot of people think, oh, it's not in the library. Oh, well. And if we don't have it, we can probably get it from another library through interlibrary loan. So just because it's not in your local library's catalog does not mean you're never going to read this book. We have ways of finding it for you. Um, 
I think a lot of the things, libraries offer a lot of programs aside from just having books for you or movies for you. Um, there's author events. There's We have uh, an African-American interest book group in my department that's going strong right now. Um, but if you go to your local library, oh, we have a kitchen in our library now and we do cooking classes, which is kind of awesome. You have a kitchen in your library? They just built a culinary um that's rad. So I, 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 this summer I took a knife skills class at the library, which was fantastic. So you never know what you're going to get. Um, so check, check your library and see what kind of programs there are, because it's not just taking out books. It's not just, you know, going in and getting a book off the shelf and leaving. There's so much interesting stuff going on. We just, this week, Monday night, Alan Cumming was at our library. Oh, that's just terrible. I love him so much. Um, and last in the summer, we actually had a group of romance authors in for the first time to do a panel discussion, which was fantastic. We'd never done it before. But, you know, if someone shows an interest in something, the library is there to kind of help out. If you want to do a program, like we have a branch that does knitting programs, um, because I think they had a patron who was interested in knitting and mentioned it to the librarian. And the librarian said, hey, that's cool. Let's do this. So you have a lot of input. Um, you can kind of help create what you want the library to be. So that is something that a lot of people, I don't think they know. They think that the library is a building and it's there, but it's there to be part of the community. And we want to know what the community wants and we will tailor our stuff to the community. But we need to hear. Huh. We need to know. Yeah. You want to do a knitting program? Volunteer to do a knitting program. You'll meet new people. And you'll knit a scarf. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dina, and I want to thank her for taking so much time to speak with us. I do have a few addendums that she emailed me afterward. Once we hung up, she realized that she hadn't mentioned the publishers that are awesome that she really enjoys working with digitally. The main romance publishers who don't inflate prices or meter checkouts, she says, through Overdrive, are source books in Kensington. And Sam Hain, who she just remembered today when she went to buy The Princess and the Porn Star for the library on Overdrive, and she said she was giggling as she added it to her cart. Oh, the power. There are a lot of small presses, she says, who work with Overdrive who aren't playing the pricing and metering games, as she put it. If any of your listeners, she says also, have questions about libraries, library services, or librarians, I'd be happy to try to answer them. So if you have a question for Dina and you would like to know something mysterious and interesting or freaky scary about your library or how libraries work, email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com and I will pass your message along to Dina and we'll get your question answered. I don't know if you've ever had a lot of questions about libraries i have many i have asked them i am i'm a very annoying patron and i try not to store up all my questions for one long pain in the butt question and answer session but if you've ever been curious about how your library works or what you can do to better support your library or why the library doesn't have the books that you want most of all ask ask your librarian or ask us and we'll ask dina and she'll come back and she'll answer questions works really well that way right and if you really feel like being you know brave and you have like time or if you're not feeling like emailing, you can call our Google Voice number at 1-201-371-DBSA. You can give us your name and where you're calling from, and we'll include your message or question in an upcoming podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Berkeley, publisher of Romancing the Billionaire, the sizzling new billionaire boys club novel from New York Times bestselling author Jessica Clare. You can find Romancing the Billionaire wherever books are sold. 
The music that you are listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. If you took ballet like I did, or you attended the Nutcracker like I did as a kid, then you probably recognize this song. This is the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, originally composed by Tchaikovsky as part of the Nutcracker Suite, performed by the Deviations Project. This is from their album, Odeste Fiddles, which is probably my favorite album title for holiday music of all time. Like, I don't think that could be talked. I will have information in the podcast entry about this song, the album, and where you can buy it for your very own, because this would make a pretty rockin' ringtone, if you ask me. And on behalf of Dina and Jane and myself, wherever you are, we hope you are enjoying the very best of reading. Have a great weekend.